the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today, we're going to talk with Dr. Emily Wang, whose work studying the health outcomes for incarcerated and returning citizens recently won a MacArthur Genius Award. Can we do better making sure that those who go to prison don't suffer from disease and death at higher rates than everyone else? And how do we get America to care about that goal? We'll discuss it all next on Detroit Today, but right now the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Good day, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson. And I'm really glad you've decided to join us. When you think about what happens when people go away to jail or prison, you think about a lot of things. But for most of us, the health of those people, the health care that they get, both when they are incarcerated and when they come home, is something we don't often talk about. The truth is that thousands die every year in American prisons, and that sometimes costs taxpayers money in the form of big lawsuits. In 2021, a Connecticut correctional facility was sued for $1.6 million because a 19-year-old prisoner died after not getting proper care for lupus. In Washtenaw County, just down the road from us here in Detroit, a healthcare company was sued because an inmate was overdosed by medical staff. And in 2019, a woman in a Nevada jail vomited and asked to go to the hospital. She was instead given a mop and died less than an hour later in her cell. That woman's family settled a lawsuit for $2 million with the jail. Dr. Emily Wong is a professor of medicine and of public health at Yale University, and she's given a lot of thought to the issue of the health of incarcerated people in our country. But her work is not just theoretical. Dr. Wong is also the director of the SAGE Center for Health and Justice, director of the Health Justice Lab, and she does a lot of research and hands-on work to help returning citizens in particular get adequate care. For that work, she recently won a MacArthur Genius Fellowship Award. And that's where we want to begin the conversation today. How do we do better by those who are incarcerated when it comes to their medical care? And an even bigger question, I think, how do we get more Americans to actually care about reaching that goal? How do we raise the consciousness of those of us who are not incarcerated in a way that makes us concerned, focused even, on the idea that we can do better by those who are in prison? Dr. Emily Wong, I'm really pleased to welcome you to Detroit Today. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to this conversation this morning. Yes, yeah, so am I. Uh, so what drew you to this work? Why did you come to care about the health outcomes of incarcerated individuals and returning citizens? As I said in the open, I think for a lot of us, this is a part of the invisibility, I guess, that uh, incarcerated citizens suffer from. And it's even more remote in our minds than some of the other issues that they face. 
Sure. You know, I, I wish I could say that it was a, a class in medical school that brought me to this too often. Uh, most medical schools in this country don't have, you know, uh, any coursework that brings them into incarcerated settings or even talking about the health impacts of uh, uh, mass incarceration on the health of our patients. It was a to be totally frank, it was a random conversation that I had with a friend of mine who had started a prison education program uh, in his college. And, you know, this led uh, me to uh, starting to understand the deep racial inequities at the time um, of the death penalty. And um, in that conversation, uh, I was in medical school at the time, realized that I really knew nothing about the whole healthcare system behind bars in prisons and jails. So I, I was a, a medical student at Duke uh, Medical School at the time, cold wrote some uh, correctional facilities in, um, in Durham and then in Raleigh and ended up working in the women's uh, correctional facility in Raleigh. Uh, and it was there that I started really understanding the deep inequities that bring women and men into our carceral system. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, the, the, the idea that prisoners, those who are incarcerated, are entitled to health care, I think, is also one of the hurdles. I mean, th th this idea um, that uh, people who are incarcerated don't have the needs or the rights that the rest of us have, I think, is 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 one of the things that kind of stands in the way of people even acknowledging this. Right. Well, you know, I, I think like you were bringing up a, a, a fundamental issue here, I think, is that there is a constitutional guarantee uh, to health care behind bars. Mm -hmm. um, given the Supreme Court case of Estelle v. Gamble in the 1970s, and this is like the, the kind of tension in this work, mm -hmm. is that uh, prior to the Affordable Care Act, there weren't places in the United States um, that really had this constitutional guarantee. And so you would see the millions of, of Americans pass through the carceral system, sometimes first access healthcare uh, as an adult behind the walls. And then when they're released home, which the vast majority are, they're released to settings where there isn't a constitutional guarantee. And you alluded this uh, in your introduction that the quality of care behind bars, we actually don't know much about. There's much to say about the quality uh, that's delivered behind bars. But when people move into one where they are uh, constitutionally guaranteed some form of care back into a system where there isn't a care, in fact, it really implicates what happens after released as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let's talk about what healthcare and health treatment looks like for both incarcerated individuals and returning citizens. As you as you said, there is a constitutional guarantee of uh, of healthcare behind bars, but that doesn't get you a whole lot. Is 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 my impression from. Uh, reading your work and others, that uh, it, it, it is a bare minimum approach that uh, is in place in most places. Right. I, I think the place where I would start is that uh, it in some places it is a bare minimum, and in other places it actually probably does exceed that which uh, is provided in the community. And so there's a real heterogeneity behind mm. uh, what is delivered behind bars. Um, what I think is is important to note is that you know in our work and others, um, given the the bareness I think of some community health systems in the community, uh, the fact that some folks don't have access to health insurance in the community, about forty percent of individuals that move through our correctional systems are newly diagnosed with a chronic health condition. Uh, behind bars. So newly find out that they have high blood pressure, newly find out that they have diabetes, hepatitis C, and then have to learn to manage that while they're behind bars. Mm. Um, and uh, the whole system of, of care delivery behind bars um, doesn't uh, enable kind of, and you know, what we talk about in primary care is an activated patient. It doesn't really enable adults to learn how to manage that chronic health condition. Um, and, 
in the community. So, you know, you can't choose what you're going to eat. You cannot choose how you want to exercise. You don't even often carry your medications in uh, with you. A nurse is delivering it. You never drop your own insulin. And so it's really passive, right? Like you just never, ever hmm. have to figure out how it is that you manage your chronic health condition. And so when you return home to the community, and again, most do, you have no idea how to call the pharmacy. You don't know how to drop your insulin or take your blood pressure medication. Um, you don't even have access sometimes to getting the medications. And so there's a real tension there in terms of what's available behind bars and then how you have to manage your health condition after. The other big tension that I want to say, and, and you're alluding to this, is that in spite of a constitutional guarantee for health care behind bars, um, you know, as, as taxpayers, and, and these are our taxpayer dollars, we don't actually know how good the quality of care is. Um, when you are in the community, um, hospitals, clinics um, have a certain amount of state and federal oversight, and you have to share the quality of care that you deliver within hospital systems and clinics to a state governing body, mm -hmm. to an independent outside governing body. Behind bars, there's no uh, mandated uh, accountable organization uh, that oversees uh, the delivery of care. And so there's real variability of how good or how bad that care is. Hmm. Uh, I'm talking with uh, Emily Wong. She is a professor of medicine and of public health at Yale University. She's also the director of the SAGE Center for Health and Justice and the director of the Health Justice Lab. Uh, she recently won a MacArthur Genius Award. We are talking about health outcomes for those who are incarcerated and also for those uh, who are returning citizens in our community. Uh, how good or bad the care is behind bars, uh, how hard it is to find care after you leave prison um, to, to make sure that uh, you're keeping up with, with your health the way the, the rest of the population tries to. We would love to hear from you, the listeners, during this conversation as well. Give us a call and let us know if you're someone who has been to prison or jail or if you know someone who has, what was health care and general care like inside prison? Was the care that you or the people you know needed but couldn't get because you were imprisoned? Uh, why do you think our criminal justice system works this way? Uh, how should we be treating incarcerated citizens and returning citizens? Uh, also, uh, give us a sense of if you have ideas for the way we can improve health outcomes behind bars and in the communities where uh, incarcerated people return to. Of course, this is a very poignant question to be asking here in the city of Detroit, uh, a place where one in every three African-American men will spend some time behind bars at some point, which not only affects those, uh, those citizens, but of course, all the rest of us. These are our family members, they are our neighbors, our co-workers. Uh, I think it is near impossible to be a Detroiter and not have some brush uh, in your life up against uh, the effects of the criminal justice system. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and uh, we can work you into the conversation. Uh, Dr. Wang, Dr. Wang, I want to talk a little about uh, post-incarceration uh, care a little more about that, and and ha have you talk about you, you you already talked about how difficult it is sometimes because of the care in prison uh, to get people to sort of be able to take responsibility for their own care on the outside. There are also a lot of other barriers, of course, uh, that returning citizens face uh, to, to to getting access to to uh, the healthcare system. Talk about what that picture looks like. 
In fact, it's those barriers that blew my mind. Uh, I was a young physician almost 15 years ago, um, working in the emergency department uh, in the community and saw patient after patient that would come into the emergency department without the medications that needed, without a place to stay, um, without kind of the, the means to, to reintegrate into our community um, and um, really saw the gaps in care uh, that were presented right after release from a prison system. So, you know, returning citizens have uh, additional barriers. They've served their time, they've served their sentence and have additional barriers to getting their food stamps, additional barriers to getting Section 8 housing, additional barriers to even finding a job. And would end up, and then again, as I meant to, uh, indicated, barriers to getting health insurance, didn't know how to navigate the healthcare system. So these are systems and policies in place that really would prevent those that came home from meeting their health and healthcare needs. And it's in this setting uh, that we've created these structures where uh, by millions of patients come home and really uh, it's almost impossible for me to imagine have the opportunities to thrive, to reintegrate into our communities and reunite with their families. And so um, 15 years ago, as you indicated, uh, we started in partnership with people with histories of incarceration, uh, folks that knew what needed to happen, uh, pro programs that attend to this need and that, uh, uh, transitions clinic programs, which really attend to the healthcare needs of people that return home, um, where we hire community health workers that have been incarcerated to work alongside doctors like myself um, to uh, build trust in a healthcare system that has previously failed them. Yeah. Uh, and you've also spoken already about the the profound needs that exist in so many of the communities where these returning citizens, uh, you know, turn, turn back up that um, in some cases, the resources, the access, uh, the quality of care is so bad uh, in the community that that presents yet another challenge. Uh, if you were in prison and uh, being cared for, all of a sudden you're in a community where doing that and making sure that uh, you can do that uh, is, is much, much harder. That's exactly right. You know, research has shown and, and you know, it's decades now where there's uh, disproportionately poor care uh, in communities that are disenfranchised, disproportionately poor care in communities where there's disproportionate black residents that are living. Um, this has been going on for decades and it's not probably news to anyone listening uh, to this in Detroit and certainly not in my current hometown of New Haven. Um, but it is even worse for those that have a criminal record. There's a study that was done um, actually in Ontario where there's you know, universal health care, so in, in Canada, uh, where they did a study showing that if an individual called and said that they had just been released from jail, uh, that they had about a two times decrease odds of getting a primary care point, just getting an appointment if they mentioned that they have a criminal record over the phone. And so you can imagine that this wouldn't be just isolated to Ontario, but would reflect the discrimination that exists within our healthcare system. Um, it's something that I've seen in practice. It's something that I, I, I you know, now taking care of thousands of individuals that have come home from our prisons and jails and know this to be the case that the discrimination, the stigma that we have um, uh, around mass incarceration, not only is existing in our employment sector or housing sector, but also exists in our healthcare sector. And so um, these barriers are ones that need urgent attention. And in particular, uh, I believe, uh, are ones that are addressed with formerly incarcerated individuals, family members who have been directly impacted at the fore, pushing our, our policies and our institutions ahead. Mm. Okay, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to 
continue this conversation with Dr. Emily Wong. We also will get going with you, the listeners, on the phones and on social media. Tina in Detroit, you'll be up first. We've also got a, a several uh, social media comments that I want to add to the conversation. If you want to join us, 313-577-1019 is the number here. That's 313-577-1019. Talk about your experiences with the prison health system in this country, either yours or people you know. Uh, Are there gaps that you noticed? Are there things that you've thought of that we can do better? We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today on 1019 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm glad you've joined us. Our guest today is Dr. Emily Wong. She's a professor of medicine and public health at Yale University. She directs the SAGE Center for Health and Justice and is director of the Health Justice Lab, also a recent winner of a MacArthur Genius Award. Uh, We're talking about the ways in which we fail people who are incarcerated uh, in terms of health outcomes for them, Uh, also uh, returning citizens, people who come out of prison back to our communities. How do we make sure that they have access to decent health care? We want to hear from you uh, on the phones and on social as well. 313-577-1019 is the number. Call and tell us if you have experiences with health care behind bars, either for yourself or someone in your family or someone in your community. Uh, Tell us the things that you noticed about uh, how how accessible it is, how how high the quality is, uh, and what the gaps are uh, that you have observed. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us, and we can work you into the conversation that way. Tim Lizzie on Twitter says, it's not a leap to assume health care for incarcerated Americans is far worse than it is for those who aren't incarcerated, which isn't a high standard to begin with. Uh, let's go to the phones here. Tina in Detroit. Tina, what's on your mind? Well, good morning, and thank you for a great topic. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to um, certainly agree with everything you said, but also including that the treatment for mental health. You know, a lot of those prisoners that come in you know, dealing with mental health issues that go, that are left untreated. And yes. um, I know the first hand, I'm a former member of the Michigan Parole Board, so I, I've seen a lot of this. Um, as a former state representative, you get a lot of calls from uh, prisoners' families because of the lack of health care that their loved ones receiving for certain conditions. So and everything she's saying is very real and something that's been going on for a long time. Yeah. Uh, I, I, Tina, I'm really glad you called and brought that up. Uh, you know, mental health is is a difficult part of the health care system in, in many ways, and, and I would imagine that incarceration uh, complicates that as well. Uh, Dr. Wong, can you talk about the role that mental health uh, you know, care for, for prisoners plays behind bars? And then again, uh, when people leave prison and come back to the community, uh, we, we don't do a great job uh, of providing those services in the community either. So I appreciate this question, Tina, and I I think it speaks to a a number of issues that are at play here, that our our, uh, healthcare systems, our mental healthcare systems in particular, are fragmented and are unable right now to deliver what we need to even prevent incarceration in the first place. That were there more infrastructure that would be able to kind of attend to mental health needs um, and were the laws not criminalizing, you know, behavioral health issues like substance use, um, that this together would prevent much of kind of the big flow in and out of our prison system. So that, that I think is important to say is that 
it for uh, us to prevent incarceration, our healthcare systems, especially our mental health care systems, need to be, must be more robust. The second is that we've just and are still living through, you know, a, a never before seen century uh, yeah, in, you know, my lifetime, certainly pandemic. And COVID-19 created uh, exacerbated circumstances behind bars uh, that certainly worsened the mental health of those who are incarcerated, those who work there, as well as even family members. Uh, we conducted interviews of, of uh, individuals that are incarcerated, as well as correctional workers, describing the grave circumstances of lockdown, of isolation, and it, you know, for any of your listeners that have stepped into a correctional system, these are places where if you're locked down for 23 hours a day, there's some jails in the United States that actually the whole system wide was locked down because of COVID-19 for hundreds of days. You couldn't leave your cell. That worsens uh, mental health outcomes, but it also creates trauma, collective trauma. And so the return home from prisons and jails is that much worse when mental health uh, um, conditions aren't treated. And also you've been subjected to this sort of uh, isolation, trauma, and even collective trauma. Yeah. And and I mean, I, I would be really remiss if I didn't remark about how poorly we here in Michigan in particular have done making sure that mental health services are available to people who are not in, in incarcerated. I mean, um, we have absolutely obliterated uh, the system of, of mental health care that used to exist, uh, not that it was uh, flawless or without without real trouble, but but we really have just gotten rid of it, and and people are largely left uh, on their own. The idea of coming back to a community here in Michigan after having been incarcerated um, and not being able to even find the mental health services that uh, that that you might need. I mean, I, it, that has to be. Um, you know, that has to be an incredibly damaging dynamic. And I would imagine that we're not the only community uh, in the country that that has that issue. No, you're certainly not. As I mentioned before, I work as part of a national network of primary care-based programs that attend to the needs of people that return home from carceral systems. It's Transitions Clinic Network. And just last week, we had our annual meeting. Again, uh, we have 45 programs across the country, all of which are led in partnership uh, with people, community health workers uh, that have been incarcerated themselves that work alongside primary care physicians to attend to uh, that, these health needs. And this is a story that is uh, playing out across the United States is that um, prior to COVID-19, uh, the social safety net systems, the mental health systems were already not meeting the needs. And even now more so uh, as we see kind of healthcare workers uh, leaving their posts, um, there is even less availability, especially in poor communities for uh, the deep mental health needs that exist. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Call and tell us about your experiences with prison health care. Um, I, I, I want to talk for just a minute about other nations that are actually doing this better than we are. Dr. Wong, you worked in Botswana and saw what prison was like there. It's not a place that you might predict uh, would be uh, better than the United States in this regard, uh, but but tell us what you experienced. In my uh, earlier years in my career, I had the opportunity to go to Botswana and um, was working with the Center of Disease Control at, yeah, on a project focused on tuberculosis care. And I remember quite starkly the contrast between uh, how the North Carolina Correctional uh, Institute felt for women as compared to the largest maximum security prison in their capital in Havarone. And so, you know, I, I had been into prisons in the United States already um, it was 
uh, kind of had my expectations set on, you know, oh, well, I, I, I wonder how this is going to be. It's Botswana. I had never been there before. And I remember walking in my first day uh, into their prison system. And you actually, from the outside, couldn't even tell that there was a prison there. There was a, a, a barbed wire that was on top of a gate, but these barbed wires exist in any home um, in the capital. So one row of barbed wire, you enter. Um, maybe a security guard is, is checking you in. And then I entered into an open air uh, facility where uh, much to my surprise, there was a correctional uh, officer sitting in the center of the facility um, where an incarcerated person was cutting uh, his hair with uh, uh, hair shears, barber shears. Um, individuals moving around uh, the carceral facility uh, uh, freely uh, with abundant food, places to exercise. Um, and I was a medical student at the time, and it just struck me the contrast between um, how it is that we fashioned our penal system, how it is that we fashion our correctional system here in the United States and how they had fashioned theirs. Theirs was a loss of liberty, but not a loss of humanity mm -hmm. or dignity. Here, we've structured it so that the very kind of experience of being incarcerated is intended to punish. It's intended to create suffering. And it's not just Botswana. I mean, if you look at, um, I mean, if you look at other uh, uh, peer countries, uh, the, the 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 focus on uh, care and and making sure that people have what they need even if they have broken the law and need to be incarcerated it looks different than it does here in the United States is that right absolutely uh, i i've been for some years now working with the world health organization steering committee on the health uh, of uh, prisons, uh, of incarcerated people in prisons. And um, in that uh, capacity, have been able to visit prisons uh, within uh, the European Union. And uh, there's a wide range across the European Union, but what's clear is that um, we have fashioned, again, a criminal justice system that is just extreme in its delivery of punishment. Uh, in many states in the United States, we don't have a limit on how young you have to be to be in the adult system. You know, and so up until recently in Connecticut, my home state, there was an eight-year-old uh, that was in the carceral system. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or, or the extremes of, you know, in the European Union, there's no life sentence upon life sentence upon life sentence. There's actual ends to a sentence. Here, you know, it's what what does eight life sentences actually even mean? Right, right. right. Why and, would you and do that? So, what, what is, yeah, like at some point you're like, what are we talking about here? What are we doing? And it's really just to stick it to a certain class of people, you know? And so it's that contrast for me um, where... Uh, it's not that uh, criminal behavior, real violent uh, acts aren't committed in other countries. It's just that the extremes of punishment aren't exhibited in their criminal justice system um, and, and also within their healthcare system. And so uh, the social safety nets in the community are, are wider. The uh, kind of punishments that exist, as I mentioned, they're called collateral consequences. But, you know, these bans on uh, meeting your basic needs following release don't exist. And so, you know, if you've served your time, you've served your time in other countries here in the United States. That's just not the case. You've served your time and that the stigma of a criminal record just continues and continues. And so uh, we have a, you know, community supervision system through parole and probation that kind of once you're in that system, it's almost, at least from from my perspective, having taken care of thousands of patients, you almost can't get out. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it's that, the extremes of how the carceral system are structured, the extremes of kind of the policies that we have to reintegrate individuals um, that really do stand out. Yes. Okay, we're going to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Dr. Emily Wong. Also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. Terry in Detroit 
Chris and Berkeley will be up first if you want to join them. 313-577-1019 is the number here. 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us. We can include you that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 W-D-E-T. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm glad you've joined us. We're talking today with Dr. Emily Wong, a professor of medicine and public health at Yale University. She recently won a MacArthur Genius Award for the work she's doing studying health outcomes for people who are incarcerated and for people who return from incarceration to our communities. We want to hear from you as well during this conversation. Give us a call and let us know if you have experience with prison health care, either yourself, or maybe someone in your family or someone in your neighborhood. Uh, what were the things that you noticed about it? Where were the gaps that you could identify uh, in in the quality and scope of that care. Uh, you can reach us on the phones, 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Now, Dr. Wong, before we get back to the phones, I just want to spend uh, a, a little time having you address something that I think probably runs through through people's minds when when they're asked to think about this. Um, and, and I guess I wonder what you make of someone who says um, these are people who have committed crimes, who've done harm in our communities. Uh, we were just talking about how other countries see that and respond. But I think in America there is a, a very strong feeling uh, that punishment is important and necessary. Uh, what is the argument against, um, you know, uh, against that kind of inhumane treatment? What is the reason that we should be treating prisoners better than we do? Well, to start, I would say, you know, and this is rooted in my beliefs as a physician uh, that uh, I believe, you know, that health is a human right. And so if if there are, uh, you know, in any place where there's a constitutional guarantee for health care, then we must be delivering the highest quality and humane uh, sorts of care uh, in behind carceral system walls and in the community. And we're just simply not doing that. Um, but I, I would say that secondarily, and I think that this is important, is that uh, mass incarceration, this huge system of laws, we're in our fifth decade in this country, um, I believe is one of the greatest health challenges in the United States of our time. And its impact is really pervasive. It's not just for the 10 million individuals that cycle in and out of our jails and prisons every year, but it's also their families and our communities at large. Our research and others would show that for those who have uh, partners who are incarcerated, for children whose parents are incarcerated, there are studies that show that having a loved one incarcerated, having a, a parent incarcerated has health harms that persist, you know, this is having kind of uh, both mental health conditions, mental health stressors, but also chronic health conditions. And so the, the impacts of having a system of laws, policies, and practice that really affect uh, poor folks disproportionately uh, uh, minoritized communities has bearing not just on those individuals, but the families and communities in which uh, they live. And so to me, these are the reasons uh, that we have to drill in on this now, is that it's not just uh, for the 10 million that move in and out of prisons, it's not just for my patients, but it's for our community's health at large. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to David in Detroit. David, welcome to the show. Yes. How you doing, Mr. Henderson? I'm good. How are you? Okay. You, you, we, we talked before you interviewed me before, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think it's, uh, I'm the best person for the comment. This health care in the prison system is almost non-existent. You know, so many people die in prison just for the simple fact being ignored. People hang and kill themselves because the psych department, only thing they, they will come and get you and lock you up for two days and let you back out with some medication. That's all you got. And David, as you say, we've, we've spoken before. Do you want to talk about um, the time that you spent? in in prison and and what that was like it was a long time yeah 42 years and three months mm-hmm. wow and, yeah and uh you know and after talking to you i came up i went homeless after that uh, i was homeless for over a year and i tried to get places apartments you know, they all denied me because I was expelling. I had a case in almost 50 years, and they still would not give me a place to live. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 it is it is painful. And, and people wonder why people go back to prison because it's better there. There's nothing out here. Mm. David, but I... It's discriminated against. It's bad. David, I, I really love that you called and and can share not just what happened to you, but but the obvious emotion that's associated with with all of it. David, can you tell me how you're doing now, and and whether healthcare is something that that you're finding accessible outside of prison? I, I tried healthcare. I, I, I went to, to the site work. They keep me for a week or two and put me back out on the street, and I go back out doing what I'm doing. And you get to thinking to yourself, "Wow, how great it was!" People, at least you know where you stand at in there. At least mm-hmm. that people gave you a shot. At least that. Mm-hmm. I haven't had a case in fifty years. Yeah. yeah. And you still hold it against me. Yeah, how am I doing? I'm not. I'm not. Yeah. So David, I'm David, not. I I want to get back to our guest, but I want to tell you before I let you go, hang on the line and have our producers uh, write down your information. There are some resources that I feel like we can connect you with, some other folks that we can connect you with who I think may be, may be helpful to you. So don't, don't hang up. Uh, just, just, uh, stay there. And one of the producers will, will pick up the line, uh, and, and get your information. Uh, but Dr. Wong, you know, this is a community where, like I said, one in three African-American males is David. Uh, you know, there, there is no escaping this issue in, in Detroit. There's none of us, who uh, either haven't had this experience or don't know who has. And when I hear David and the anguish in, mm. in his voice, it, it makes me absolute, it makes me feel absolutely helpless uh, uh, to, to solve these issues that, that, that um, you know, there, there is not, um, there is not in place the infrastructure, I think, to deal with, the scale and the scope and the depth of of these problems in a community like Detroit. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I so appreciated uh, David kind of uh, the courage and honesty um, it takes for you to share your story and also really much hear the suffering uh, um, that is now after forty plus years of coming home into the community. And it's this place where the healthcare system uh, must be held accountable. Uh, has to be held accountable um, for uh, what I think is in, you know, 
blatant indifference to the health needs of those that move in and out of prisons and jails. He was even alluding to the fact that sometimes it's easier to be inside. And my patients would say the same thing, you know, that at least they knew the rules, at least there they understood. Um, and the care, you know, as he was saying, was crappy, but, you know, at least there they they could they could figure it out. To me, some of the biggest solutions, the, the hope that I gain are from um, staff and faculty at the SAFE Center who've been incarcerated, who are really leading the way in, in identifying solutions uh, to this disconnect, to this blatant disregard. And this exists in programs like Transitions Clinic Network. Unfortunately, there isn't one in Detroit yet where we bridge the health of people that return home to Detroit um, with community health workers that have been incarcerated, uh, that work in the healthcare system, again, to make the healthcare system accountable to those patients and their families who come home from carceral systems. But it also is in other solutions that are deeply derived within the community themselves. I know that in Detroit, the Detroit Justice Center is doing work also with the healthcare system, trying to think about how it is that you prevent incarceration um, prior to individuals going in. And, and within um, our research, much of what we're trying to focus in on is how it is that you build community supports um, to think about how it is that you can start uh, both preventing uh, mass incarceration. So as if it's a, giving home loans to people whose loved ones are incarcerated mm -hmm. um, so that when people come home, they have a safe place to stay. To stay, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or also trying to think about how it is that you uh, start loosening the networks, the barriers uh, that people face uh, post-release. So in terms of employment, uh, food stamps and housing, how it is that you work with those agencies to break down discriminatory practices. These are the places that the work within our SAGE Center and then within Transitions Clinic Network, we're really trying to push forward um, so that uh, it's uh, more systems oriented in thinking about solutions. How is it that our health systems, how is it that our uh, community safety nets can be more responsive mm -hmm. To these dire conditions. Yes, yes. Uh, again, David, I really appreciate uh, you calling and and being so honest and forthright uh, about the things that you're uh, that you're facing. And then again, we'll we'll work on trying to connect you with some some resources that may help. Let's go next to Terry in Detroit. Terry, welcome to the show. Um, Stephen, thank you for such a. Uh, 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 important topic another wonderful show um and your guest dr wong thank you for your very thoughtful comments and all the information you're sharing with us this morning i did want to mention that um i wanted to circle back to mental health and behavioral health mm -hmm. and point out that the um the united states made the biggest investment they've ever made in moving towards community-based behavioral health last year when they signed that um, protecting our children or safer communities mm -hmm. act, mm -hmm. um, and and it it all was related to the excellence in mental health that our very own Senator Debbie Stabenow championed in the Senate to get community based behavioral health funded and to fund it in a way that makes it more permanent and equitable. The way we treat healthcare, which ain't great, but the way we treat healthcare is. You know, we pay for the services rendered, and we don't just grant fund it. And so we do have community-based behavioral health centers in Detroit, uh, known as CCBHCs. We've mm -hmm. got some fine organizations, Southwest Solutions, Neighborhood Services Organization, um, Team Mental Health, um, a, a variety of, of providers that are working in the community. They're partnering with the police force and with judges. Um, to uh, create diversion programs and, and help opportunities for people rather than just parking them in jail and not giving them the help they need. Um, so it, it, it isn't all perfect. It isn't all in place yet. But I know that it's, it's moving forward, and it's moving forward in a bigger way to help more people uh, than we've ever done in the state of Michigan, mm -hmm. and it's being rolled out across the country. Yeah. Uh, Terry, uh, you're, you're absolutely right about all of that, of course, and and I probably should have noted that when I was talking about 
our system here in Michigan. I, I guess for me, it is that we're rebuilding a system that was so badly damaged when we essentially defunded yeah. it uh, in the in the 1990s, and that look, uh, we're, we're we're doing these things that are that are important and innovative, but the the outcomes, you know, are still to. To, to, to come in terms of changing those outcomes. Uh, but but you're absolutely right, not just about uh, the federal commitment, but, but of course, Debbie Stabenow, uh, uh, one of our senators here um, in Michigan who who has absolutely championed this. Uh, I'm glad you called and, and, and noted that. Uh, Dr. Wong, I wonder if you have the same optimism about this new federal commitment to community-based mental health. I think it's a start. I mean, I, I think, you know, I, uh, it's important and I think is exactly how Debbie stated, which is um, uh, legislative acts, I think, are, are important starts, but it's in the implementation. It's really in how it is on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um uh, where you can really kind of see the biggest outcomes. And so, you know, to me, some of it is just now we're going to see how it rolls out. And in our community in New Haven, I mean, I think certainly um, there's much to be done, but uh, big pieces of legislative uh, acts, you know, even in the rolling out of the Affordable Care Act and, and Medicaid kind of being rolled out, um, there's lots of hope. Uh, and in important gains, but in the studies now, they're showing that for justice-involved individuals, insurance rates did go up. So, you know, mm-hmm. low-income uh, young men did get higher rates of insurance, but actually didn't get increased engagement in behavioral health or mental health services. And so the the real um, kind of proof will be in what happens now moving forward. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the idea of rooting this in community-based systems, I think, is is important. I mean, one of the things that, that we really lost here in Michigan when we dismantled the system was the idea that it could be rooted in, in community and responsive in a way that it, that it wouldn't be otherwise. And I know that, that, that your work really, your work really focuses on that as well. Right. I mean, I think much of our work is really grounded in the fact that people that have experienced incarceration uh, and uh, either directly or indirectly as family members have to be at the table in setting policy, have to be at table in thinking about uh, legislation, science, uh, the change in the healthcare system, if we're to be responsive to what has now been five decades of mass incarceration. And I believe deeply rooted in our nation's history that if they're excluded, we'll, we're bound to recreate the same problems that, that have we existed. Had before. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Dr. Emily Wong, it was really, really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you. Thank you for this. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when it's going to be Valentine's Day, and we're t- going to talk about what life and life outcomes really look like for people who are married and people who are single. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.